Riverhead Books presents Marlon and Jake Read Dead People, a podcast with Marlon James and Jake Morrissey. There is something very rich in tearing a book apart. I don't want to spend my eyeballs on these 300 pages. You really don't have to read any novel, except maybe Moby Dick. I'm stunned hearing you say that. The first book I got was Journal of a Plague Year. The feel-good book of the pandemic, ladies and gentlemen. I know. I'm a reverse size queen when it comes to literature, <laughs> I guess. Okay, I love this more and more. Hi guys, welcome again to this episode of Marlon and Jake Read Dead People. I'm Marlon James, which means the other guy you heard is Jake Morrissey. That's right. And we're back again to talk, you know, talk some shit about dead people because what are they gonna do? Haunt me? I was an exorcist. I can get rid of I can get rid of ghosts. <laughs> Yeah. He's a man of many talents, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this episode, I, we want to point you to some good writers through history and and maybe a couple to avoid because this is, you know, we're recording this as schools are starting again and standardized tests are about to start. We want to go back through the last, oh, 400 years or so to tell you which authors and books of the 20th, the 19th, the 18th, even the 17th centuries we think are really good at what they do and why we think they're still worth reading in the 21st. So um, this this will not, none of this will be on the final and we're not trying to make this sound more difficult or more complicated than than uh, just, a two, just a couple of guys talking about books by dead authors. But I want to know from Marlon where he wants to start when we when I say you've got 400 years. Show me, tell me about some good writers in that time. Oh my God! I mean, it, it, there's so many ways in which this is a loaded topic. Uh, um, You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Even in terms of of what we had access to, um, you know, at the time. Right. So, um, 17th century, for example, there's some pretty stunning things happening in Japanese literature. True, which but, it, probably unlikely uh, Europeans were remotely aware of that. Right. You know, by the time we got to Tale of Genji, Genji was from the 12th century. Mm-hmm. Well, by European counting. Right. So, by, and and what was available was pretty awful. Yeah. Uh, so, it's it, yeah, first you have to deal with the whole that if we're going to go back, we mean, it means a lot of European works. Okay. All right. So having Okay, that's fair. Um. Uh, which which I don't mind because a lot of stuff I mentioned here are also European because mm-hmm. um, a lot of the, the, the stuff that I have read that's non-European actually predates this list, predates this discussion. If we talk about, you know, the adventures of Amir Hamza, we're talking Middle Ages. Okay, um, all right. We talk, you know, if we're talking about Tale of Genji, we're talking the 12th century. Right. So, you know, way to blow a concept from the very beginning. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, the, the, well, where this where this works for me um, is because it is my second favorite pastime, which is to start fights. <laughs> and everything we see here is both. I, I if this is I, I, I mean we've talked some serious shit in this thing, right. but this could easily be the most controversial. <laughs> uh oh! I can't well, wait to hear what you're about to without, say. No, no, no! I, I actually think my choices are frustratingly tame. Uh, especially when we get later and and later on in it, but you know, if we're gonna start with sem- the seventeenth, the seventeenth century, in terms of certain people, you do not make this list because you're not yes. the seventeenth yes. century. I, you know, it's it's there's just no escaping Paradise Lost. 
Well, okay. Um, why would you want to escape Paradise Lost? I don't think I, I don't want to escape right. it. Um, I, don't, I didn't mean it in a, in a negative way at all. Okay. Uh, I think it, it casts a shadow undeservedly so. Well, it is the kind of thing that a lot of people had to read in school. Yeah. But I think I agree with you. I think it's worth reading outside of school. It's worth reading. Unlike, say, Alexander Pope, must we? <laughs> Do we have to go to him? Really? Do we really? But I mean, Paradise Lost is a good is a good uh, is a good choice. I yeah, think. it's like, do we really need the metaphysical points? <laughs> no, nah. no, we don't. We really we don't. don't. We no. really sorry, lit teachers. <laughs> um, but it's it's the the usual selling point with with um, Paradise Lost, of course, is the very complicated portrayal of the devil. Yes. Um, what can I say? All these years, yes, that's still a great selling point. Totally. Totally, it's um, it's it's it it's a kind of it's a kind of 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 poem and work that, for one of a better phrase, put you all up in your feelings. Yes, and to, just to be clear, it's by John Milton. By John Milton, and it's a long, uh, uh, kind of poem about you just get about somebody who sort of confronts. Um, well, I don't want to put words in. No, your no, mind. you're you, going pretty good. No, well, it's a it's a it's a poem about good and evil. Mm-hmm. Um, done by John Milton, and it, it it's very long, and it goes into a lot of detail about about uh, you know sort of characters both on the ground, but as you say, the mm-hmm. interesting you know one of the most interesting characters in it, like like the Inferno, is mm-hmm. the devil. Is the devil, and it's 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 I there's a part of me that I wish I was around when this came out and saw that oh, particularly the Catholic Church dealt with this. Well, I can I can. F- Feel a lot of pearls being clutched across the mm-hmm. ample bosoms of the various members of the curia and the papal the papal court. They could not have been pleased. Yeah, you know, I mean, there are some people who will see the fairy queen and think, "Let me check that out." Like, nah, <laughs> not doing it. Does it? Well, the, the thing about the thing about Paradise Lost is it's it's um, uh, you know kind of full throated. I mean, it's mm. not you know it's not um, it's not dainty. No, it's, it's about as I said. It's about kind of basic humanity. What does it mean to be good? How do you act? You know, how how can you be a good person? Mm. How can you be a bad person? Mm. And um, you know, some of it is you know, some of it's not. Some of it's tedious. I'll be I'll be honest. But yeah. by and large, I think the it's it, it's the reason it's still well known and people mm-hmm. read it is that it, it is worth it's still worth reading. Mm-hmm. For me, and I haven't read it in a while. It was just so surprisingly complicated in a very modern way. It, it, it was exactly. find complicated. Yes, I, I, that's a good way of putting it. Um, it, 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 it. You know, if somebody, yes, there, there are books you will read like say Fairy Queen. I don't want to keep dragging that that thing. It, 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 you know, I actually quite like it, but it's, you're a better person than I am. <laughs> I didn't say I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't either. Yeah, but you know, well, Spencer's a little too much. Like you know, Elizabeth Regina. Like, we get it. We yeah. get it. We get it. I also, I also got the sense that Spencer is, and I know we're not talking about this. Spencer was one of those people who was like, "Oh yeah, I'm the smartest kid in the class, and I know it." Yeah, you and know, he really like, wasn't. Well, see, that's the thing. It makes you kind of want to like put your foot out and have mm-hmm. him trip when he comes up to pick up, you know, because he got the highest score in class. There, in other words, there's something just. I I found a, a little bit too impressed by himself, and mm-hmm. also the Fairy Queen. I was not a fan. No, I, I I. But the thing about Fairy Queen though is also it's a it's it's probably the longest act of kiss ass. <laughs> 
um, Explain pretty what much ever done. Because it was all trying to just, you know, get up in Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth I, exactly. Um, and who never struck me as a type of person who would sit down and talk. I'll bet you she never heard all of it. Well, you know what? If everybody's telling you how great you are, do you real? I mean, I'd sit around and listen to that. Yeah, but it's telling you in the same way. True, yeah. true. And I, and, and it's it's. I mean, it may be fascinating for people, but I think it's also. And I'm sure, I'm sure the 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 early modernists or whoever would come after me of this. I actually don't think it's as complicated as Paradise Lost. I think Paradise Lost is actually remarkably um, sort of uh, both subtle and also um, it's almost like a you take a series of like you know strand. In other words, it's a very strong rope when mm-hmm. all when all is kind of bound together. I think it's extremely effective. I think, as I said, parts of it are not great, but it's. I think it's really um, uh, kind of a kind of the. Muscular Christianity at mm-hmm. its at its most readable. Yeah, if we're gonna read muscular. Christianity. If you're gonna read 17th century poetry, exactly. Um, like I can't remember what what century is. I think he may have been. He, yes, he was. When is when is um, Canterbury Tales again? Oh, that was before this. I think so that, that was be 14th or or, or yes, yeah, so or or even 15th century. Maybe yeah. 15th century. Yeah, uh, I mean, why read that? Oh you come know, on! But, I'm not yeah. saying every one of them is any good, but there are some fun stories. Yeah, it, it's it's. Yeah, I mean, I will say. I can't remember why I brought up. Why I can't remember why I brought. Oh, I think what I was saying about Canterbury Tales. For I mean, almost of the necessity, and also because of time, it's it's not as complicated. No, that's true. That's true. And you know, I, as far as I mean, this is again not why we're talking about. You don't have to read. You have to read Paradise Lost from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read the Canterbury Tales in the in any particular order, in no. my opinion. No. Okay. Well, that's a good one. Um, P- P- Paradise Lost is a good one. Because mm. w- the one from the 17th century that I want to talk about is actually a play. Mm. It's, um, it's actually a restoration comedy from 1697 called The Provoked Wife by John Vanbrugh. And it's, what's remarkable to me about it is that in the play, it's the woman who gets to decide how to behave. Um, the, the main character or the woman is this woman named Lady Brute, and she's kind of forced into fidelity by her drunken sod of a husband, Sir John Brute. Stop me if, you've, if these names mean anything to you. Lady Over, Brute. Yes, exactly. Well, I like it. So what happens is, you know, Sir John goes on this kind of drunken bacchanal, and um, he ends up appearing, and I will spare you the details, but he ends up appearing before a magistrate dressed in his wife's dress. <laughs> so it's, you know... Triumph turned to tragedy when, anyway, so um, Lady Brute and her niece actually go out in the town themselves and they kind of meet up with these, with these, um, these two guys, the whole process. But what makes, what, for me, what makes the play really interesting, um, amazing, in fact, is at the end, it's the wife, it's Lady Brute, who um, basically gets, well, Sir John gets caught trying to essentially rape his wife, rape, rape, and he gets caught and he's forced to change his behavior to get out of jail. Mm. So the wife is, you know, the provoked wife is the one who wins at the end. And it's this, it was considered, you know, it's, it's actually very funny. It was considered, um, really scandalous at the time that it was, it was produced because it was, you know, it was so, um, you know, body and and you know, and the wife actually wins. I mean, she yeah, ends up she ends up on top, shocking. so to speak. And it's basically the story of a woman trapped in an abusive marriage mm-hmm. and how she how she um, gets her husband to behave himself. One of my theories about those plays is a lot of times they're accidentally, accidentally. I don't want to say feminist. That's not what I'm looking for at all. 
but accidentally sympathetic to women. Yes. And I wonder if it's because it was all men playing those roles. Well, that's actually interesting because I think – I actually don't know who the actors were, if it was all men or men and women. I mean, if this. it was just – I can't imagine a woman being on stage. Well, that that, that could very well be. I mean, it, this was at the – you know, this was in the end of the 1600s. So mm-hmm. it was – well – What's his name? Charles II, the king, was, was one well, of his mistresses. So yes, yeah. was the was the um, you know Nell Gwyn was the one of his mistresses who was an actress in the, on the stage in London. So there must have been women mm, running so around. They were okay. But my point is, is that this is is this is as you say, it's not feminist in the sense that we, but it's but it's about you know women deserve a shot yeah. at happiness and good mm. behavior and all of that. Actually, you're right. Restoration would have been actresses. I'm thinking pre-restoration when Shakespeare, right. which would have been all men. By restoration, there would have been actresses. Right, right. And so that's actually disrepu- shocking. Disreputable women. Mm-hmm. I mean, they certainly weren't considered, you know, the sort of creme de la creme of, of society. Mm-hmm. That, but I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, what I like about it is, you know, Van Brew was writing about, um, you know, what it what it means to be to sort of get, be, to be caught in a in a life mm-hmm. that's that is not making you happy. That's as I said, this abusive relationship, and what it and how do you um, how do you like triumph over it, or how do you like you know basically tip the scales in your favor, or even balance the scales? So mm-hmm. it's it's a remarkably um, I think a remarkably modern take on on relationships um, in in sixteen ninety seven. Yeah, it's always interesting when something ends up seeming remarkably modern. I have me is uh, it, I wonder is it some sort of freak, some sort of fluke, or people had the capacity to be this modern right. and chose not to be. Right. I, I I I you're right, and I think in some ways it could possibly be. You know, I'm not interested in doing the same thing again. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in surprising people. And you know, there this was not this was you know this was a play that scandalized people. This was not something that everybody thought. Oh my God, this is so great! It was mm-hmm. you know there was some um, there was some comment on it. So it's it's you know Van Brew is was somebody who he was a soldier by by kind of vocation. He wrote the, uh, he was uh, imprisoned in the Bastille. He came out. He ended up writing very, some very successful plays, and then became actually an architect of all things. And he ended up designing. Um, he designed Blenheim Palace for John Churchill, the the hmm. ch- where that Winston Churchill was born in two hundred years later. He designed Castle Howard, which any of you uh, television types from the eighties might remember was the house in Brideshead Revisited. So he was a wow. guy who had a lot of different kind of. Hand fingers in different pies, so to speak. So he was somebody who was, I think, had a sense of what was happening in the culture, in the world, and and you know the houses and the plays were surprising and unexpected and in very different ways. But this the, the provoked wife for me is something that is fun to read. Yeah. I'm still back at the part where he leaves all that to become an architect and like. <laughs> <laughs> career goals. Well, I can't say that, you know, I, I mean, I don't know much about his about his uh, professional life, but I can't believe that, you know, being a playwright was the way to make the bucks back then. If you're the, if you're the architect of a, you know, the largest private home in England mm. and you're being paid by the British crown to build a house for this soldier who defeated Louis the 14th on the battlefields of Europe and kept the French power in check, you're going to make some dough. Mm. But that's a whole other conversation was, about yeah, Van Brew. Yeah, I keep thinking I should redesign the porta potty. <laughs> I probably make a lot. <laughs> okay, the fact that you even need to think about that alarms me. You know what? Somebody. You know what? This is. <laughs> thank God in humanity that somebody does think. Somebody about this cares. Stuff. You are. You are caring about this. All right, anyway. What else have you got? 
Oh, you mean the same 17th century? Or are we going to the 18th? Uh, you can go to the 17th if you want to, if you got more. But I'm actually, I got Milton only for the 17th right. um, because then I'll really have to talk about why I hate Alexander Pope. Um, I, I'm I'm open to some Pope dissing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pull a trial up. Let's let's just feign forget Pope altogether. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anyway, so when I thought 18th century, the first person I thought about, then I read a lot of, I, I really went into it, then I went back to the same first person and the same book, Frankenstein. Okay, good, good. Because I, I came very close to choosing that as well. Um, and, and also, if I'm going to put book on author, and also Mary Shelley, actually. Okay, yep, good. And, that's a, and the 18th century is a way more crowded field than the 17th. Yes, totally. And there are quite a few people I could have put on it. And I could even dug deeper and know, mm-hmm. oh, hold on, that book was from the, from the, from the 18th century. Um, because I think for all sorts of reasons, even by today's standards, I think Mary Shelley would be a provocateur. Yes, totally. I think Mary Shelley would be a very controversial and problematic woman. Um, and, you know, it's most people know of Frankenstein from the films. Yes. I personally think Brad of Frankenstein is the greatest sequel ever made. I got to say props to Elsa Lanchester. She yeah. she knows her she knows her um her gothic horror. Yeah, Frankenstein is okay. Yes. Brad and Frankenstein is a masterpiece. Yep. That said, most people when they finally sit down to read Frankenstein go I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. By the way, people Frankenstein is the, is the doctor, not the creature. <laughs> Pro tip, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, just the next thing you're going to talk about is a book you haven't read. Um, but the the way in which the, so the, you know it does move like a melodrama. Yes, and and it 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 moves in sort of twists and turns that you wouldn't have expected. Um, the creature is quite vile, yes. but in a lot of ways, it, you know, quite humane, and. Even the the desires for vengeance and so on are actually really human. This this is somebody who's been wronged. Yes, and I think that's the right word. This is a real. This is a very. This is a very good book about the the ups and downs of being a human, seen through mm-hmm. what it means to create a human out of other pieces. Yeah, but also, uh, I think. And I don't think the book does this, but I think a lot of the, 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 the thinking about this book is that Dr. Frankenstein boiled down the worst essences of humanity into this creature. And I think Frankenstein certainly thinks so. In fact, he does. He, when, he, when, he, when, he, when he tries to, 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 to get rid of, of the creature, he does look at it as this sort of mission to rid. You know, it's almost as if, it's almost as if he created Mr. Hyde. Yes. Absolutely, and 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 the creature is also like, why did you do this? Yeah, why? You know, I, I'm you know, literally, I'm in hell. It, it's almost as if kind mm. of shaking your hand at God, yeah. saying, why did why did uh, you create me? Kind of thing. But I still sometimes go, girl, what the hell were you thinking right in this book? <laughs> so 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 bad enough that you you have this guy create a new Adam. And we see how smashingly that went. <laughs> that went really, really well. Homeboy's yeah. like, "Well, you better get me an Eve, or I'm gonna rip shit up." <laughs> right? It's not gonna. It's not gonna be good. Yeah. And then he tries. Right. Right. And you know, I don't want to give away too much about it. This novel is is this, you know, it's it surprises you sometimes the violence and brutality in it. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that as a way to turn off half of the people listening to this. 
but that um, we have this idea shaped mostly by 20th century cinema about 19th century, about 18th century books. True. And, and you know, it, yes, and very much sort of seen through the storytelling techniques of 1930s Hollywood. Yeah. And, and, and post-code True. 1930s True. Hollywood. Yes. And and that may you know you may be and, and also pre-Victorian because Victorian the Victorian era did some shitty things to literature as well, mm-hmm. um, which we'll it, get to. Yeah, and it 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 is a pretty bracing and and quite generally shocking thing. And 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 Mary Shelley to me and and when you're done with Frankenstein, Matilda is very interesting. I just can't imagine that book being published. Actually, it was published. Yes. But Matilda is literally pretty much about a guy who has a hot for his daughter. Yes, it's it's creepy, let's be honest. It's, it's, it is possibly her creepiest book. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, there's a book with, a, with an invented monster, but it's, you know, it's over-affectionate daddy. That would be probably her creepiest creation. Totally, totally. And, you know, and then you have The Last Man, the original post-apocalyptic novel. Now, I've not read that. Talk about that a bit. So this is a novel that about it's it's I don't want to give too much away, but let's say that it went from being a shocking novel to a oh, that really wouldn't happen. That's not how the world ends <laughs> novel. Seems unlikely. But man, now that we're going through COVID and, and it's a great plague that caused us to reach the last man. It's it ended up back being relevant. Stop me if you've heard this before. If you're gonna read I Am Legend, and sure, why don't why not? Mm-hmm. If you're gonna watch any of the millions of zombie movies that started because of a plague, Mary should have got there first. Interesting, people. interesting. And you would not think, at least I wouldn't, that her sort of upbringing was mm-hmm. not something that you would think. Oh yeah, this is the person who's going to kind of plumb the kind of depths of sort of humanity through, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, gothic fiction. Yeah, and I mean, part of it too is that she was also hanging around Byron. Well, yeah, I mean, her. And, let's just say she had some unsuitable friends. She had some very unsuitable friends, including her husband. Including her husband, yes, Percy um, Shelley. And, and so on. So this was, this was a definitely a decadent bunch. Yes, um, <laughs> yes, they, you th- yes exactly. But, um, you know, it's it's... Mary Shelley also isn't Mary Shelley the mother of Mary Wollstonecraft. Yep. So, so good things did happen. Absolutely, and and I think that I think for, for the purposes of this conversation, Frankenstein is very much. A, it's so much more than Boris Karloff. Yeah, and I think it's it's it, you know I think it's worth rereading, and I think it's as, as your for your point, it's like amazing that this is something that was was created and written at a time when you you know the the kind of sort of the emotional struggles or the or the kind of internal human struggles that she explores are you know I don't think we see a lot of them even two three hundred years later. Not really, not at all. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned her because I, as I said, I, I chose her, but I actually decided to to actually choose another British writer, a woman um, named Anne Radcliffe, who was um, much less. She was she was also a pioneer in kind of gothic fiction. And um, when she was alive, she was actually the most popular writer of the day. She wrote uh, novels where the female characters were kind of, you know, equal to men, not unlike, um, not unlike what we talked about in Provoked Wife. And, and they ended up tro- triumphing over some of the men in the, in the, in the novels. And I think her most, her most famous one is a book called The Mysteries of Udolpho, which if you've ever read Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, she mm. makes total fun of the mysteries of Adolfo because it was so popular. It was like the, 
you know, th- whatever novel you think of today is something that everybody reads. This was, mm-hmm. you know, this was the novel. So, so she was a, she was a, she was a writer who was really, really good at kind of writing about uh, the sort of internal fears and concerns about, you know, the secrets we hold and this, and told through the kind of, you know, dramatic, um, uh, you know, almost um, parody like parodied now in 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 the uh, later about you know the fears we have, the concerns we have, the 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 creepy doors opening and whatever. Anyway, she's a lot of fun. She's not read as much as certainly as Jane Austen is now, mm-hmm. but uh, something like the Mysteries of Rodolfo is is for what it was. It's a great read and a lot of fun if you're in the right mindset. Mm-hmm. The one I, other one I want to talk about is is William Blake. Mm-hmm. who was, um, for my money, kind of one of the great poets of the 18th century. And he's almost sort of, in some ways, he was almost kind of unique in in kind of a writer in the English language. He was a poet and an artist and printmaker kind of all at once. And he was he was considered a, a kind of a creative, well, depending on your point of view, a creative outlier or a crank um, over the course of his life. Um, his poetry was was really known for kind of the, kind of the mystical, sort of undercurrents in it and it's sort of constant his constant push to kind of create change the kind of creative forms of what poetry does um i mean he himself not unlike mary shelley was a complicated guy he was a committed christian who didn't like the the anglican church he was an um a nonconformist who was attracted to the ideas of the french and american revolutions but he hated robespierre and the reign of mm-hmm. terror um as many did um, and also he believed in sexual equality, but tried to get his wife to agree to bring in another woman into their marriage. Um, so he was, a, he was a guy who, you know, he had one or two, he had one or two issues. So um, anyway, it's a, he's a, I think a very um, readable poet nowadays. It's a lot of it, as I said, is can be mystical and meta, and kind of metaphysical in a way. So he's not for everybody, but I definitely think for what he does, there's nobody who does it more, um, it, to me in any way, more, uh, more brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember William Blake because we all had to, we had to, all had to learn the tiger poem in school. Tiger, tiger, burning bright. Absolutely. The of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. There you go. Even nowadays, what, 30 years after you had to remember this, mm-hmm. the rhythms of his language we still recall. Yeah. It's funny. You know, before before I, 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 I settled on Mary Shelley, I did think a lot about Daniel Defoe. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. You know, one, because Daniel Defoe would be one of those people who I had a very big attachment to when I was younger. Um, like, you know, I read Robinson Crusoe yes. and so on. Um, I you know, I mean, I have big issues with those books now. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> you know that in Jamaica, there are these all-inclusive hotels who call the woman who worked there Girl Fridays. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, because it is the 21st century. Yeah. I I, I was stunned as I... Wow. And we're not talking Rosalind Russell Girl Friday here. <laughs> oh, no, no. This isn't Cary Grant and Rosalind yeah, Russell, right? It's, it's it's So, you know, but I mean, I I still really like Mal Flanders. Mm-hmm. But okay. I think... I, I do think that Defoe is funny enough to me, very much a person of the time who hasn't actually aged or transferred very well beyond his time. So you think he is of his time, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, but he doesn't get that props. He gets props as being eternal. I'm like, right. no, he's not. Right. He's actually not. Right. Interesting. Okay. It's not. He's not Shelley, and he's definitely not Byron. Right. Right. Or certainly not Percy Shelley. 
I guess my big point about about um, 18th is with very, very few examples, and of course Austin is probably the grand dame example. Absolutely. That I actually think the poetry is better in some ways. Do I think that? I probably don't think that. I probably mm-hmm. prefer the fiction, I think. Catch me another time out, I've probably said Austin. <laughs> Exactly. If we had had this conversation an hour earlier or an mm-hmm. hour later, you would have come up with a different. No, that's fair. I mean, I think too. I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize, you know, the the poetry or whatever, because mm-hmm. I was talking about just talking about Blake. But I think, I mean, I think in some ways, for me, the kind of birth or the kind of flowering of the novel happened in the 18th century. At least the novels that I remember as a kid or a young person thinking. Oh yeah, this opened up the way, or this showed us the way forward to write different kinds of books. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you have a you have a fondness for is it Pamela? I go back and forth with Pamela. Okay, it's really yeah. But I mean, my point is, is that I think the thing about the poet uh, the, about the fiction in the 18th century, it was a lot more structured and it was a lot more intentional, mm-hmm. as opposed to let's just write something else. Let's another another chapter from this picaresque story of wackiness or whatever. So I mean, anyway, we can get we can move on, but I do think um, I do think mm. there was a lot in the in this in the um, the seventeenth century or the eighteenth century to actually recommend it. Mm-hmm. You want to go for the nineteenth century? Of course, the nineteenth though gets more and more complicated. <laughs> I'm um, sure it does. It's it's you know, it, and I I I was um, caught between three people. Okay, I was too. Um, Saddening of three white men. <laughs> Forgive me, people. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Uh, and the three were were Charles Dickens, Henry James, and Emil Zola. Wow, the three of the whitest men you could have picked too. They're, they're, yeah, these are whitey white. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> these are my underwear after real some serious bleach. Totally, right? absolutely. Yes. Um, it's it's and 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 the person that was funny enough kind of narrowing down on me, I don't know if I, I I I was going back and forth between Zola and Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the sentimental choice is Dickens, of course, right? And the novels would um, definitely be Bleak House. Bleak House, absolutely. Um, it's I don't want to go into it. In, in terms of Emil Zola, which ones would you have? Which ones uh, would you have pointed I, out? I'd probably Nana and Germinal. Mm-hmm. I I you know I trash social realism pretty much any chance I can get. Okay, but if you are gonna do it, do it right. Do it right. Um, and I I you know there's something about Nana I like, and there's something about that I don't like. One of the things that that's really interesting in so-called racy novels. Mm-hmm is that a lot of them still have a moralizing, and I don't mean moralist, I mean moralizing bent. Right. So Nana does get her kind of comeuppance. Nana ends up right back where she started from. Okay. You know, uh, 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 you know, girl who stooped to conquer, mm-hmm. and then she ends up back on the street. Nana is a prostitute in case they didn't pick up me beating around the bush, <laughs> listener. Um, you know, there's a certain unsentimentality that I like about it that I see why it horrified Henry James. Right. Um, he was appalled by it, but then he then uh, later on calls it Zola's infernal intelligence. Yes. Well, that was the thing. I think from somebody like Henry James' point of view, he might have been you know appalled by it and knew he couldn't do it, but mm-hmm. also knew it was really well done. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, it's and I mean, if you you know listeners have listened to this podcast long enough, you know my deeply conflicted feelings about Dickens. Yes. Um, you know, including some of it po- political and personal. Yes, totally. Um, but I think 
in a lot of ways, if we're going to start talking about novels that point to all that fiction can be, mm-hmm. Bleak House is up there. Absolutely. I think it's one of the great, it's certainly one of my favorite novels. It's one of the great novels of the 19th century and of English literature period. And what I like about it for me is that it is, you know, despite your your disdain for social realism, it's mm. one of those things where you got a sense of what a lot of different people were mm. experiencing and living in those in that world that Dick when Dickens was writing about it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the rich and the poor, the mm. the, the well the, the worthy and the unknown. Yeah. That said, I would say my number my like my number two is a pretty high number two. And a very, very important novel for me as well, Huckleberry Finn. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. What was that pause? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's if we must. It's a little bit like that. I, I mean, I understand. It's a, it's, it's, it's a little bit. I, I, I get the. I get. I understand why people like and admire Huckleberry Finn. I just find it. Um, I don't know. There's something about it that is. Uh, it's almost. It's almost kind of capital W worthy. Mm-hmm. And I want it, and I want it to be, and I and I know it's my reaction to it. I don't think it's the novel itself. I think that's interesting because if you are not American, you not you don't know that context exactly. So, um, and part of this is the part where the, the sentimental part for me um, with this novel was that for me it was the first novel I read written in a dialect. Yeah. And coming from a very colonial education, even in the 80s, mm-hmm. where dialect is considered bad English, and we rarely got that. There's no way in hell would have been given a Zora Neale Hurston novel. Right, true. Um, and even, even people who are anti-colonial would still go, but this shows at our, at us at our worst. So, you've, so you end up with two different opposing sides coming down to the same kind of censorship. Right, right. So... A novel like Huckleberry Finn was a revelation for me to read. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm not – we don't know the context of its place in American literature, American culture, or even the, the, the idea, of, yeah, that it's it's worthless. When, when um, you know, someone like Hemingway says, you know, this is the beginning and the end. Right. It's like, no, it's not. No, it isn't. It's yeah. – it's, 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 I don't know if I'd even call it the greatest 19th century novel. I certainly wouldn't, but I I, mean, I understand why it's still read. I wonder. I understand and, and, why people yeah. uh, embrace it. And I understand why it's it's you know it's kind of eternal. In a lot of ways, it's it's one of the one of those original children's novels that goes deeper than that. Which is why, for me, Tom Sawyer is a more. Um, I enjoy it more, and maybe that's why I didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think I enjoy Huckleberry Finn. Um, Tom Sawyer, I enjoyed, but um, and I know I was supposed to only pick one, but um, and this guy, this was a hard pick for me because he straddles the 19th and 20th, and what you do with somebody who straddles both, and uh, but I'm going to put him in the 19th, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, because um, because the idea of approaching poetry in the voice that come out of your own mouth mm-hmm. was still again speaking as a, as as somebody who was taught that. The, the language I speak was broken English, meaning it needs to be fixed. Right. And for him to take ownership of his own tongue. And and he was from where? Um, I know he's American. That's what, yes, he's American. Uh, black American, 19th century. Yes. Um, probably definitely would have no, at least known off, you know, or been yes. through slavery. Um I don't know a lot about him, actually. I know although there is a lot to know. Well, the, that's interesting you mentioned him because he is somebody who I don't. I don't think a lot of people do read, and mm-hmm. and they they should. I mean, I've only 
come across him glancingly. So I and I'm not an expert. So well, I come, came across him because I because I'm, I'm always interested in who my right my the reader the writers I love. Who do they read? Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I ended up reading Bessie Head because of Toni Morrison. Yep. Um, and and all, re- all roads lead back to Toni Morrison yeah, on this podcast. Of course. As well they should. And I wasn't even trying to put her <laughs> in this one. Um, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, you know, I know where the cage bird sings. I think yeah. it comes from a Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're, um, I think I did read that. You yes. know, poem. So, yeah, he, he straddles the two, so he, he'd probably make my cut. Those are good ones. Yeah. He, like you needed my approval. <laughs> um, the first one is an American writer named Kate Chopin. Oh. Who wrote the Awakening? The Awakening, yes, yeah. which is kind of one of the first kind of American novels that that sort of talks about or explores what it is a what it is kind of a you know a woman you know can do to have the 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 love in her life that she deserves. And it's um, it's not long. It's um, it takes place in New Orleans. It's in the South. It's about a woman who's unhappily married, and it's sort of the story that and what I what I think is so impressive about the way it's written. It's it opens it 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 occurs. It's written. It's almost inevitable what happens, mm-hmm. and yet it doesn't seem inevitable. I think the women in this in the uh, the awakening are actually fascinating. My favorite Kate Chopin work is actually a very short story called "The Story of an Hour," and that is, takes place. It's a story about Louise Millard who learns that her husband has been killed in a train accident, mm. and it's the story of what happens when she em- embraces that or or you know kind of internalizes that information and then it and how it, how the story ends it won't give it away is fascinating and and revelatory about um the inner life a woman's inner life in the ni- in the 19th century in America so mm-hmm. Kate Chopin something that does not have boring parts is a study in scarlet by sir arthur conan doyle Ugh. published in 1888 it's the first sherlock holmes novel and it's um he basically i mean there are other people who came before he did um in terms of you know how to write about a detective and the story unfolds or whatever he's kind of a master of both the character of sherlock holmes and being able to kind of give you just enough information as a reader to want to know what happens next and um Anyway, it's kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of granddaddy of, of detective fiction with Sherlock Holmes. But The Study in Scarlet is actually definitely worth reading if you, um, you want to be introduced for the first time to Sherlock Holmes, to Dr. Watson, to the tropes of the sort of the, the, that we've come to know and, and, and sometimes love um, are part of the kind of literary life. P.S. Doyle was 27 when he wrote this. So really? not a bad way to start your, you know, your uh, your first novel. Wow. You know, I had no idea. Who knew, boys and girls? Exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're, we're done with the, 20, the 19th. Let's mm-hmm. go to the 20th century. So, you know, when I, I think of of 20th century, again, any any sort of listing that this is an act of reduction. And mm-hmm. I thought of quite a few things. Like I thought of... Um, you know, Dio Faguna's novel, you know, Forest of a Thousand Demons, Ooh. it's called in another way. It's, it's not a great novel. It's one of the first novels, I think, written in Yoruba. Uh, and it's it's not a great novel, but it's an important novel. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of what we consider, you know, African fiction, um, you know, it, you know, stems, you know, a lot, that's, that's like the shot fired. Mm-hmm. Um, Willie Sienka did a translation of it a few years ago. How long is the novel? It's pretty short. Yeah. 
And um, and as I say, as by you know by things fall apart standards, it honestly falls apart. See what I did, dear audience. Um, but it's it's but it's also it's important, and and you you will also end up with. And I don't want to spend too much time on novels, you know, flawed novels of crucial significance. Right. Important. Right. You know, um, or novels that, you know, like I think Kane by Gene Toomer, mm-hmm. in some ways, some people consider it a perfect work. I think it's, it's, a, great, it's a fantastic work and it's influential. Right. But it, does, it, does have, it does have problems. So in, in, in trying to come, you know, narrow down this, I was actually trying to narrow it down to one, which is almost impossible. But if you force me, I'd pick one. The first person I had is Zora Neale Hurston. Good. And um, of course, of course, their eyes are watching God. Yep. But I also, but Zora did more than that. Like Barracoon, which came out a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. it's also super interesting. Is that Zora is is a fantastic in you know fiction writer and inventor, and I mean inventor in the sense of invented worlds. Mm-hmm. But she was also a record keeper, and she was also really, really, really good at bearing witness. Mm-hmm. And um, the really, really great novelists like Marquez did that as well. Um, for every 100 years of solitude, there's a story of a shipwreck sailor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Zora, you know, Zora, I mean, died, you know, in really bad, bad in a really bad state. Mm-hmm. By the time she died, she was des- almost destitute um, in Florida. And... Some of her biggest critics, critics were black writers who couldn't get past that she's writing dialect. It's like we're supposed to come up from slavery, right, not right. down. And, 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 and it's that whole thing again about the wars over language. Right. But here you have a black woman who at one time was one of the most successful writers in the country. Absolutely, yes. Um, who wrote you know, some pretty um, fantastic novels whose archival work in Jamaica and other places as well is is crucial. This is this is you know this is this is um, somebody who really helped shape the twentieth century, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an ideal, not just as a great novice, but what a lit- what a literary citizen is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Zora, and we wouldn't have known any of this if Alice Walker right didn't come out and start start championing. Well, she's her. the yeah, she's the one who like you know. Shouted from the rooftops about mm-hmm. Zora Neale Hurston. Right, and I—I I mean, I, I've not read as much as of hers as I should, but it's revelatory. Mm-hmm. And and even the stuff that I don't like, I always feel as if I've been changed by it. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff in it, I, stuff in it I don't like, but I also think a part of that is sort of the, the you know the time. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. Uh, but there is, it's it's. I can't imagine, as I said, I can't imagine um, 20th, century, 20th century literature without her. Yeah. Certainly not the literature that people like me write. Um, oh, yeah. that's interesting. So you think you, if if hadn't been her, it, you wouldn't have been writing what you're writing. I mean, I probably would have, but I think the I, I you know the very first things I ever wrote, I still wrote like I was a tourist to this language. Okay. I wrote as if I wasn't entitled to use it. Okay, and it shows, and um, you know when you know a lot of us writers from former British colonies come together. We talk about our struggles with English, yeah, because the first thing because we were never taught that it was ours, and we were never taught to take possession of it. We're taught to bow to its will. Interesting. So, so, so basically, you didn't have you didn't you weren't able to use it the way you wanted to use it. 
Well, I wouldn't even think it was something I could use. Wow. Okay. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why colonial English is so servile and so caught up in, in passive voice. Mm-hmm. Because we don't want to, we certainly don't want to speak up against the British people or Mr. Massa. <laughs> right. Right. Wow. That, uh, you're right. I mean, I'm, it's interesting you put it that way because mm-hmm. I think the idea of, you know, somebody like, um, Zora or or even you know even somebody like Twain using mm-hmm. using the dialect by choice mm-hmm. um, that must I mean they had the freedom to do that mm-hmm. and you sitting where you were and coming and you know trying to write when you weren't going when you weren't sounding like you know um, not that there's anything wrong with this not sounding like you know Virginia Woolf God I wish I was going to Virginia Woolf instead of sounding like Henry Fielding. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, it's, that's a whole other series of it's, problems. It's, yeah. yeah, but that's also a big problem. And it's seen now, even when I go back and I teach certain classes, I would kill for somebody sounding like Virginia Woolf. Okay. Good. Um, you know, instead, I still, people still use the word like artiste. <laughs> right. It's so annoying. I know the headline of a Jamaican newspaper. <laughs> These artistes. <laughs> it's like, good Lord. Okay. What's Turn the page, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah let's move on. Uh, okay. Fine. So, well, the, other, the, the, the others, I was trying to, to, to really not put Toni Morrison, but you know she's on my list. I, but I, don't I, have to I was waiting it. for it. She's on my list, and I don't think I need to go into any big detail because I talk about her every, every <laughs> podcast. Um, somebody I don't talk about a lot in a podcast, and 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 to me is is super important is Chinua Achebe. Mm-hmm. Um, things fall apart, of course, but also Arrow of God. Okay, I've not read that one. Um, how is it different than Things Fall Apart? Um, I mean, I guess you could call it a sequel, even though the characters are different. Um, people sort of put them as a trilogy. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I agree with that. Um, uh, uh, things sort of what are of God, and I think the third one is usually no longer at ease. I think. Okay. Um, but you know, things things fall apart is also one of those first novels by non-white people we read. In fact, I am actually I think it is. Yeah. I think it's the first novel by a non-white writer that I read. Really, it's certainly the first. I mean, it's often well in school. I meant sorry. That's what I mean. I yeah. think for I think for some of the sort of public schools, at least in in the United States, it's often the one of the very first sort of certainly non-European uh, mm-hmm. authors um, and non-white authors that that kids read. I mean, it's considered I think a you know a good entry point. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true? Um. Yeah, but then you end up with that thing where you're giving somebody a really complicated novel. Well, then that that they may embrace simplistically. Well, yes, but I will give you this: they embrace it totally. I mean, which it, I think is which ultimately is a good thing. Okay, that was my that was my question to you because okay. it's it's because their novels are given that they reject. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we could talk a lot about that, but um, <laughs> it's. I, I I remember enjoying that novel, yes. and I remember knowing that I had a lot of stuff to say about it. Okay, that's good because what it's I think that's the goal mm-hmm. is to both open the door to these kinds of this kind of these kinds of authors and these kinds of ideas, and also prompt people to sort of be able to sort of talk about it in a mm-hmm. way that is um, uh, for them for the for the people reading it eye opening. Yeah, um, the third person I had was um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Another another podcast favorite. All right, the three that I have for the 20th century are I've got a witness, I've got a storyteller, and I've got a grandmother, I think. 
Um, the first one is actually nonfiction. It's um, it's the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And You're I, saying you actually finished that I book? I actually finished that book. It was published in 1974, and I found it transfixing because what it is is are there a, three volumes? Well. I think so. I'm, again, okay. I, I don't actually know how it framed, but mm-hmm. the, the one that I read was was a single volume. And it was about – it was basically written, you know, as a, almost as journalism about what, what the gulag, the Soviet labor camps were from 1958 to 1968. Mm-hmm. And he was there, um, you know, in, in – and he kind of reports this in, in kind of excruciating detail, this kind of completely compelling story about what was essentially Stalin's version of the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it sort of shows the kind of the horrors of the gulag and, and, you know, told in this kind of, you know, you're going to, sh- I'm going to show this to you with every fiber of my being. So it's not an easy read. It's, mm-hmm. you don't leave thinking, oh my gosh, I was, um, I'm so glad I read that, but it, but it, over over the last thirty years, it's stuck with me, and and I don't think I'll ever forget it. Um, wow! It's it's a, it's a it's an amazing piece of of writing, even though it's translated. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 second one I want to mention. Yeah, I'll, oh, sorry. I was saying that good. It's definitely three volumes. You might have read the first volume. Well, maybe I did, and I and I should not, in fact, pretend that I know more about mm-hmm. it than I do. I've the one that I read was. 500 pages, 600 pages. So maybe it was volume one. Mm. Maybe it was. So I, I can't speak. Let's just say I can't speak for two, for two and three. I can only speak for volume one. See, I that is one of those books that's in my library that I'm like, am I ever going to get to this? Well, I mean, the thing about it is I think you have to approach it the right way. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're lying or, you know, it's not like it's lying on your coffee table and you're thinking, you know, I'm between... I'm between Netflix shows. Let me open the Gulag, the Archipelago. I mean, it's you got to be you got to be ready for it. And it's um, actually like a lot of Russian work. Mm. Um, you have to be ready. So is it not while I'm reading my book with Fabio on the cover? <laughs> I think this is not the romance you need to work. Yeah, exactly. This is not. Say. The, yeah, next time. But I mean, I it's I for me it bears it it you know it bears witness and it's it's uh, and I'm happy to stand with him reading mm. this. Um, I found it. Uh, I found it more compelling than I expected. Like I found War and Peace more compelling than I expected. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed I enjoyed War and Peace. I'm glad I read the Gulag Archipelago. Hmm. Anyway, that's yeah, my that's my nothing. Opinion. Nothing. I'm gonna have to read it. <laughs> yes, between you know after if as long as it has Fabio on the cover, you're fine. Um, the the next the 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 storyteller I want to mention is um is and I think we may have talked about this before Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, mm-hmm. which is was published in 1938 and it's a story, it I actually think it's a very neat trick that she pulls off. It's the story of an unnamed young woman in England who meets and marries this mysterious British um, uh, uh, wealthy British man um, who takes her back to to his ancestral home Mandalay. To Mandalay. Mandalay and um, and. Uh, the story is about what actually happened to uh, the first the first wife, who was named Rebecca, and the story unfolds in a way. There's an incredible sense of control to what the story happens, as, as the story, and and you realize that what you think happened isn't what really happened, and that how you, um, how she, how Demaria pulls off a novel where the main character is dead. Mm. is kind of an amazing thing from a from a 
just a technical point of view. Um, and and anyway, it's a gr- it's a great, enjoyable, readable kind of classic novel in English written by um, uh, uh, a really interesting kind of complicated mm-hmm. woman herself, um, Daphne du Maurier in the in the mid thirties. And I interesting or for me at any rate, it was it was. Um, Made into a movie with Joan uh, Fontaine. With Joan Fontaine as the as the second Mrs. De Winter and Laurence Olivier, and uh, as as Maxim De Winter that won the Oscar for Best, Best Picture in 1940, the year after Gone with the Wind, and it was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I actually didn't know that Hitchcock did it, Rebecca. Yes. I never actually so so I've never seen the end of that film because I always said one day I'm going to read the book. Yes, and I don't want this film to spoil it the, for me. The book is the the book ends differently than the than the movie. My friend Teddy, who I've mentioned in podcasts before, he loves that book. Yes, he it's swears by it's it. it's really worth reading. If you, I mean, it's it's the thing about it that I find fascinating is that. While it's the the structure of the story is so well done, the characters also come through. Even this, you know, even the Joan Fontaine character is, you know, this nameless mouse of a woman who marries who marries Laurence Olivier. Again, I'm talking about the movie. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's fascinating how um, how the story is told. Anyway, I know I know uh, I have one more one more um, novel I want to talk about, and it's by um, it's it's A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. And it was published in 1962, and it's the story of a of a young girl named Meg Murray and her kind of prodigiously intelligent younger son, younger brother Charles Wallace and her twin uh, other twin brothers, and a and a friend of theirs called Kelvin O'Keefe. Anyway, it's the story of this family who find themselves um, hurling through the universe. And it is a story about family and love and um, physics and hate and the Tesseract, all told in a um, in a children's story where a children's novel where the lesson is that the most powerful force in the universe is love. And it sounds hokey. I have to say, I've, it's not. It's incredibly mm-hmm. moving and readable and fun for a kid. There have been, I know, a couple of um, movies made of this of mm. this novel. Neither of one of which I was able to see because I couldn't bring myself. It has such a strong spot in my heart really? as a as a as a reading experience mm-hmm. that I didn't think I wanted to see it on screen enough to allow to kind of give it give my give give the visual experience the space that I think the reading experience had for me. Yeah. See, I've never read A Wrinkle in Time. Have um, you seen the movies? I've seen one of the movies, um, but I yeah, I've never read. It. I, I I know of its place as you know. I mean, as somebody who also reads a uh, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy and yes. so on. Um, but I've never read it. But it's but I've always been curious about not just the the book, but its place as this sort of seminal seminal kind of text. Well, it feel it, it, reading it as a kid, and I read it. I was probably. You know, 11, 10 or eleven or whatever. And when I read it, I remember thinking, "Oh, I I wonder if I'm smart enough to know what's going on." Mm-hmm. And in 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 you are. And and what it does is it kind of melds issue. It melds kind of science fiction and fantasy and kind of a children's story, almost a fairy tale, in a way that seems weirdly real. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the 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 girl is. You know, she's. 
you know, she's smart, but she doesn't. She's not popular, and and you know, her she tries to protect her older, her younger brother, who's really smart, but is bullied a lot. And there's this other kid who sort of might be, you know, um, kind of a loner himself. All of whom kind of come together as as kind of friends, and then get themselves sucked into the story about you know love and hate in their constant battle in the universe, which sounds hokey, and I don't mean it to sound hokey, but it is um, because the characters are so. They feel real, mm-hmm. um, at least to a you know a you know a middle um, you know middle class white kid growing up in in America in the 20th century. It they felt real, um, and and also what what did they what did these kids draw on as a you know when they were kind of faced with um, uh, you know when they were confronted with the enemy, mm-hmm. and um, anyway I found it I, I've read it I've read it a couple of times as a grown-up and I think it holds up again I haven't seen it visually represented because the, the the characters that that are not human I have a kind of specific vision of and I wasn't sure that I wanted that vision mm-hmm. to be modified yeah. by anything that somebody else would have done that reminds me of a friend of mine who refuses to watch a lot of the rings films and he says you know I've read I've read like say, the law of, like, say, um, Fellowship of the Ring 10 times. Yes. And the 10 times I read it, I had 10 Frodo's. Oh, wow. And I have this fear, and he's right, that if I watch a film, I'll only have one. That's right. And I think that's that's both the great the greatness of a film and also the the limitation of it is, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that people go read Gone with the Wind. You can't not think of Vivian Lee as Scarlet mm-hmm. O'Hare if you go back to That actually night. helps Gone with the Wind, though. Well, it, well, yeah, it probably does. You're right. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And let us know what you think at WeReadDeadPeople at PenguinRandomHouse.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can follow Riverhead Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on books by living authors like me. And we'll have links in the show notes to the books that we've talked about in this episode. So thanks for listening. And as always, go read some dead people. They cannot come for you on Twitter. Listening to Marlon and Jake means my to-read list gets longer every week. Enter Libro FM. Libro FM lets me purchase audiobooks directly from my favorite local bookstore. I can pick from more than 185,000 titles, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. I get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But I'm part of a different story, one that supports community. And you can be too. Marlon and Jake Read Dead People listeners can get a special offer. Two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership. That's two audiobooks for just $14.99 with the code Marlon and Jake. Visit Libro.fm to get started. Now go read some dead people. Offer only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S.